Welcome back to the Fit for Golf podcast. In this episode, I am joined by Ian Fraser of Tour Experience Golf, better known as TXG. TXG has become very well known around the world for its expertise with golf equipment and fitting. In this episode with Ian, we talk about what amateurs need to know for getting the most out of their equipment and club fitting sessions. I learned a lot from Ian in this episode, and I hope you do too. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a couple of seconds to leave a rating and review and share with your golf buddies. Just before we get started, a reminder that Fit for Golf has its own app. Golfers of all ages and standards are making huge strides in their golf performance, fitness and health. There are programs to suit everyone and there is an abundance of material to suit people working out at home or in the gym. Visit www.fitforgolf.blog forward slash app to find out more. You can get 20% off a 12-month subscription with the code FFGPOD. Now to Ian Fraser. I am very happy to be joined by Ian Fraser of TXG today. How are you doing, Ian? Mike, I'm doing well, buddy. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. All is well now. Um... Club fitting is something that I looked into a little bit more as I was kind of working on my own golf. And if you are, you know, part of, I would say, the golf community online, it's something that a lot of people get big into because I think it's a pretty fascinating area. There's a lot of science, there's a lot of art, and you were a name that kept on popping up. So I eventually got in touch with you. We talked quite a bit about uh, equipment and training as you're an avid golfer yourself. But basically, to start us off, I'd like you to introduce yourself and TXG for anybody who may not be familiar. Would love to, Mike. Thank you. So, um, yeah, I founded TXG um, back in 2016. Um, Got into the golf industry about 20 years ago. Uh, Went down the PGA route to start with. Kind of fell in love with golf. A little bit later than most most people, I kind of fit, yeah, about 16 years old, took up the game, turned pro when I was 18, so it was quite a fast development. Really wasn't much of a golfer when I was young. I was a football player uh, and actually a badminton player um, when I was younger. So get into golf late, but completely fell in love with it. Uh, went down the PGA route, got my Class A status in, in you know the first three years. Age 21, you know, was like every 21-year-old thinks they can play the game for a living and, uh, you know, played for a few years with next to no success. But throughout that process as a player, my kind of like where you and I kind of met, through my process of trying to be the best player I could be, I, I, I discovered the Pandora's box of equipment and all the different options and shafts. And, and this was in the early 2000s, so nothing like what it is today. So you know, we were only starting to see the aftermarket shaft world coming into the, the kind of forefront. Um, launch monitors starting to become prominent. So at the time when I got into equipment, I was very lucky. All of these things were starting to uh, evolve. So 2005, I get a job with TaylorMade, uh, become a tech rep with, uh, with them. Brilliant time to jo- join TaylorMade. I mean, you know, they had been through the tough times of the bubble shaft and uh, those those who have played golf long enough know that those were some dark days for TaylorMade. Orange heads and bubble shafts were not the best drivers they ever made by any means. But around the time of R500, R700 into R9, they were really making some of the best stuff out there. And that was the time I was working uh, with, with TaylorMade. So um, through my time with them, Mike, I, I kind of realized though that there was more to this world of equipment than just being singularly focused with one brand. I never really wanted to be limited to just give someone a single club because I didn't feel like we covered all bases with our particular brand. So, you know, I'd be at a multi-vendor demo day and somebody'd come and say, okay, Ian, you know, I'd love to try your forged irons. And I'd go, well, we're tailor-made and we at that time didn't have the best forged irons. Our 7TP was our best iron and it wasn't a great forged iron. So I'd say, See the Mizuno guy down there? You probably want to go chat with him or the Titleist guy. He's got some really good stuff for you. Maybe try this head, this shaft, and you'll head in the right direction. So my mind was always moving towards being brand agnostic, even when I wasn't truly brand agnostic myself. I was working for a particular brand. So 
I knew the day would come when I wanted to free myself up and literally just give people the right equipment for them rather than the right equipment that we offered from our company. Um, so that led me in 2011 to come over to Canada. Uh, I came over here and was, was one of uh, a group of uh, people who started a club fitting company over here. Um, got a great amount of experience from the brand agnostic perspective, but also from a business perspective. You know, the one thing I had become quite proficient at was the club fitting side of things, but really I'd never ran a business. I'd never thought about, you know, how do we make this into a profitable entity? You know, how do we, you know, how do we balance the, the whole, the whole you know, business in itself? So I was at that business for about five years, got some good experience and then went, you know what, I want to paddle my own canoe. And, and that's when uh, TXG started in 2016. Fabulous. And it's obviously gone very well since based on the popularity you have online and the following and the great reviews that are regularly seen. Yeah, it's been brilliant, Mike. It has. I mean, we, you know, we kind of had a, a different, um, maybe a different view on how we went, wanted to grow the company. Uh, you, you, traditional marketing is, is, is great. And, you know, there's a lot of money, though, that can be spent going down the, the print media marketing route. Um, and we've made all those kind of, I call them now mistakes, because I know what we've invested in our social media and our digital media through the YouTube channel. But we went down a route of basically creating um, content so we could show you who we are rather than tell you who we are. So I feel like, you know, traditional media, we would maybe do our website or something where we would go, you know, we're TXG, we do club fitting, we offer all these services, but how are we different from anyone else at that point? Whereas I felt if we turned up every single week with a video every, two, you know, every day or every two days, we could over time build trust with you through the content we show you on the, on the channel. Brilliant. Yeah. Thanks for adding. And we'll go through a little bit more at the end too, about where exactly people can find you if they want to do fittings and stuff like that. We're going to get into a little bit of the content now. So basically everybody listening to this podcast is somewhat interested in speed and distance. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm going to jump right into driver fitting. Launch monitors have optimizers uh, for distance. Many club manufacturers, or at least a couple of them, have released kind of charts which show the maximum uh, distance based on a certain club head speed. Mm -hmm. These numbers are fabulous for optimizing distance, but obviously golf is more than just distance. It's not long drive. So can you maybe dig into the considerations that need to be made about driver fitting for optimizing distance in a simulator, which might be a great selling point, versus strokes gained off the tee on the golf course, which will be a combination of distance and accuracy. So obviously forgiveness needs to come into the equation. Yeah, yeah without a doubt. Um, we get that a lot. Um, and I would say, Mike, we're, we're probably quite fortunate in the environment that normally the, the, the best driver tends to win in our base on, on accuracy and distance together. There's normally not much of a trade-off that goes on where you kind of have to pick your, your uh, poison, which one you prefer. Um, but yeah, I mean, you take, take long drive, for example, right? You, you know, they play with such fine margins, because they're looking for one thing and one thing only is to hit the longest ball within the set that they have. That's not the game we play. Um, you know, and I kind of felt like, you know, if we want to use Bryson as, as our example, there was, there was times last year at the open championship where he was, you know, slating, you know, his own driver and how it was performing that I think most people who have played some form of Lynx golf out there have went, well, you, you can't stand up in a tee in a Lynx golf course and treat it like a, a long drive grid. It's just not the way. It's not just not the way you're going to play it. And no surprise that week that the craftsman Morikawa, who who you know played shots into the fairways with shapes and you know completely different way of playing the game. But no no surprise that he was the victor that week. So um, yeah, we, we never want to be on the edge of of just producing the most distance that we can. Everything in balance. You know, I always like everything to have. A buffer either side of it. We can go lower and spin if we hit it high in the head. We can go a little bit up and spin if we hit it lower in the head, and we're still in a very safe category. That to me is what club fitting truly is: working not for a single shot, but within a, a group of shots. Yeah, that's brilliant. What are some things that people should be considering in terms of 
I know you said there's not a huge trade-off often between the best drivers you see between kind of distance and forgiveness, but is it that people need a little bit more spin on their mishits? Is it something to do with the launch angle, not getting too low, or is it a combination? How would you kind of explain that to people who are maybe curious about what they need to be looking at? Yeah, I think it depends what you're bringing to the table with your own delivery characteristics. I mean, if you're, let's let's say someone who's, knows that they're leaving speed behind. So take the player, for example, who's a little steep on the driver. So they're playing with their friends or whoever their, you know, you know, four ball is on a weekly basis. And they get in the middle of the fairway with a seven iron and their descending angle of attack and their, their kind of way of compressing the golf ball works really quite nicely for an iron. And, and they hit it pound for pound as far as everyone else they play with or maybe further, you know. Then they get on the tee with that same delivery and they just give up all this distance um, because of that particular delivery because it's not quite as functional uh, with uh, with a, a driver. That's where I think club fitting really comes into it. So we look at things like face-to-path discrepancies, strike point consistency, and spin loft. Ultimately, the, the, the vertical spin loft and... You know, spin law for people who are who are familiar with the term is a little bit more than just attack angle and de- de- delivered loft. There is an element of face to path when it comes to spin loft as well, where we can kind of tighten up that. So that's where I think you know club fitting has come into an age of we look at it now in three D rather than two D. When I was when I first started club fitting, you know, what I learned on was people in the range who were looking at it, you know, in two D, who were going, "Yep, that's a nice launch angle and spin rate." Now we look at the, the 3D delivery, how that impacts strike location, spin loft, all those specific things. So um, I think as long as you're factoring a 3D image into the, your mind when you're, when you're club fitting, you'll always come out with a pretty, uh, the, the right solution. You just made me think of a question there when you were talking about that. How does club fitting with different launch monitors impact this? Yeah, quite quite a lot. I think that's why. So at TXG, I mean, you know, far from a sales pitch, but at TXG, part of what we do with our uh, fitters is we they have to be up to TrackMan um, level two certified, and they have to have the Peak certification, the Foresight Peak certification as well, because I want them to talk both languages. I want them to talk radar, which could be point of max compression you know, measuring from the the CG of the golf club, the center of mass, whereas our camera-based technology is measuring from point of first contact and always from the face because that's where the cameras are facing back. Is this with the quad? You use the that's quad with in quad. your fittings? Yeah, yeah, we use quad. So, you know, I've used TrackMan. That was my first introduction to launch monitors was in 2006. I had a TrackMan for 10 years. And again, very fortunate to have you know, such amazing technology so long ago. People are now starting to get into TrackMan, you know, over the last few years. I mean, to think I had one at my disposal in 2006 makes me, you know, I feel so fortunate because I was starting to think and and realize all this pattern recognition about, you know, watch heads and shafts and golf balls people need to use uh, to to maximize their performance. But for us in the indoor environment, for me, um, up until now, I've tested nothing that compares to to GC quad indoors. How does indoor versus outdoor change it? Um, well, it doesn't change things from a foresight perspective, right? So, because it's still measuring just that point of first contact, and then obviously the the algorithm will then produce the uh, the result from there. Where it really changes is when you're using a radar. So, again, the radar is designed. I mean, we, if we think of radars in general what radars used to track weather systems. You know, we all know about, you know, Doppler radars used to track missiles, you know, military grade, you know, uh, tracking. And then we track, you know, uh, the golf ball. So we we kind of really want to be utilizing the full range of technology when we've got a track man. Um, and then really up until recent times, of, you know, last maybe year or so, Foresight had such an advantage over, over track man because it was able to detect gear effect, you know, so anything laterally on the face, foresight could measure the twist on the golf ball and the subsequent gear effect from the flight. Whereas TrackMan would see a toe strike, it would see the deflection in the head, see the open head because it was measured from the point of max compression, and it would show a shot going out to the right for a right-handed golfer. And foresight would be shown as a toe hook. And we all know what happens, you know, when we hit it in the toe is we get a bit of a hooky flight 
or you're opposite with the heel. We get a bit of a cutty flight, but Trackman for the longest time would show you the opposing result, show you a heel hook and a toe fade uh, when that wouldn't actually happen. So now I, want, I will say to Trackman's defence, I have used their new... Um, their new RCT golf balls. Uh, we've used it since they've upgraded. It's light years better indoors than it was a few years ago. We actually done a video on that maybe six months ago. Maybe not even that on the YouTube channel. And and there's there's a much smaller discrepancy now between TrackMan and uh, and and Foresight indoors. The gap has closed significantly. Fabulous. I actually didn't plan on going into uh, launch monitors at all in this mm-hmm. podcast, but you've uh, you've sparked my interest. There's a couple of more things I'm going to ask, and then we'll sure. we'll move on to some of the rest of it. Because um, I think people who maybe get fitted or practice on different ones might be interested. You can get slightly different clubhead speed readings mm-hmm. on TrackMan and Quad with basically the same swing. You can. The gap is narrowing with that as well, though. Uh, I would say when I, you know. First got track man, we were seeing one five oh, one five ones, you know, kind of smash uh, factors. Smash factors. Yeah. Yep. And even to be honest with it, with when the lofts were getting strong for players who would kind of hood the face and hit a bit of a draw, we were seeing one four eights and one four nine smash factors with irons, you know, a few years ago as well. So that has actually changed a little bit. And these companies are all kind of modifying their algorithms, trying to tighten up. Foresight have went through a period of the, the last little while being kind of, not accused, but, you know, people would f- realize that sometimes the high launch low spinner would would go way further than you would expect it to see. Yeah. I, I was in here today hitting some shots, um, 163 ball speed on my driver, 13 launch in 2000 spin, and it was carrying 280. Right, those are those are real life numbers for me. That's yeah, exactly yeah. how I my ball speed. That's how you know a good launch for me and a good a fairly good spin, bit low but pretty good spin. I would have said to be honest, a year ago that would have carried two ninety, two ninety two, a little bit further. So I think foresight are manipulating their algorithm going the other way. So. Yeah, because you you do sometimes see uh, quad, you know, pictures Mm -hmm. of quads, uh, like a dashboard posted online with the ball speed and the carry distance and the spin. And you're looking at it and you're like, there's just no way that that ball carried that far. Like it it doesn't, it it doesn't add up. And I, most people were kind of saying, again, I don't know enough about it, Mm -hmm. that it has some issues with high ball speeds and low spin. It can get a little bit messed up on the reading. It, it can, it can, it can over, it can overestimate the read. Uh, it, it can, and and that's where I, I noticed today though that that I think it was two eighty one carry on one sixty three ball speed, uh, thirteen launch and two thousand spin. I, I mean that might have been a little more than two ninety, you know, a, yeah. a year or so ago. That's that's very real world uh, for me. Perfect. And in the past, usually. Um, the quad clubhead speed would yeah. read higher than the trackman clubhead speed, right. but the ball speeds might be the same. So people could get a little bit confused on quads, mm-hmm. and their smash f- factor might look yeah. lower. But it's exactly. really just the slight differences in how the clubhead speed is being measured. Is that correct? It's correct. And also, if we go back to what we said earlier about one is it point of first contact, so and one is point of max compression. So if we look at high high. Uh, you know, high speed footage of of, de- of deflection. When an iron comes in, what creates the divot is often sure the angle of attack, but also the slowing down of the club head as it collides with the golf ball, and the club head then drops down as it then collides with the ground and back out. Well, the same thing happens with the golf ball and the driver. Is you know when the the driver comes in on on uh, collides with the golf ball, point of max compression, we have a slowing down of the driver head. So, you know, when that ball separates, we're not measuring apples for apples the same amount of speed. One is when it's first touched the golf ball and one when it's fully compressed the golf ball. Those are very different measurements. Yeah, and that's why ball speed is often the one that is the same, but the club head is different and why ball speed might be kind of the the key one to track if you're bouncing around launch monitors. You know, the ball speed is the realisation of... Of, of distance or speed and the club head is the potential for the, 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 you know, ball speed or distance. You know, we, we always know what we've got with ball speed. We know what we could potentially get with club speed. Fabulous. Um, 
So a lot of people that are listening are, as I said, interested in speed. They're training for speed. Mm -hmm. And a common question that people wanted asked was, how much speed do you need to gain, either miles per hour or maybe percentage-wise, before you might have new equipment needs and you should get your, your driver or your other clubs kind of checked? That's a really good question. Um, I would say if you if you were picking up between five to eight miles an hour of driver speed, you probably then want to go and be checked because A, the speed might take you out of the shaft profile that you're in, but also how did you gain the speed? You know, we talk a lot about forces at play when it comes to gain the speed, uh, whether we're producing those laterally, vertically, or rotationally. And often if you have gained some speed, we may have some delivery characteristics change uh, in order to get that. So that can influence dynamic lie angle. It can influence dynamic loft. It can influence your strike point rate of rotation. So not just how it takes you out of a, a speed window, it may take you out a delivery window completely, and we need to re, uh, re-look at that. Yeah, that's a really good point. So if someone gains seven miles an hour over six months, it's not. It may not be the case that it's seven miles an hour with all else being equal. They might have a completely different angle of attack, a different yes. base to path, a different launch and spin. So Absolutely. really, it's basically a different swing. The speed might just be one element of the delivery that's changed. I look at club fitting, Mike, like at Rubik's Cube. And the thing is with a Rubik's Cube is if you become a master of the Rubik's Cube, you understand what's happening on all six sides of the cube. Club fitting's like that. Any any change you make doesn't influence just one thing. It influences everything on every side from a delivery standpoint. That's why I always want fitters to think in 3D terms because if you're thinking in 3D, a change to angle of attack doesn't just change angle of attack. It can also change path, right? It can also change the projection. It can also change the, the face angle because the face angle will be relative to the path. You, you can never just think of things in, in just you know uh, two dimensions. Yeah, because I I know listening, people are probably thinking, and I'm the same. It's like, so if I gain five miles an hour, I need to take one degree of loft off my driver, Mm -hmm. or I need to go up, you know, five grams in shaft weight, or I need a slightly stiffer shaft. There's no formula that can be given out for that because there's so many things that could change that are that could have changed to lead you Mm -hmm. to that speed gain. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and that's why compound club fitting, which is kind of my favorite way of uh, of looking at it is the way I approach club fitting. I never try and do one thing to improve your game. I try and leverage six or seven things to improve your game. So I might look at the golf ball compression. I might look at uh, the strike point that influence a lateral or vertical adjustment in the strike point. I might look at the how the shaft deflects or droops or rotates. You know, might be looking at grip size. Uh, you know, we might be looking at somebody who we feel can gain from going half inch longer or half inch shorter. I'll never just be looking at one single thing uh, to gain someone performance because you can gain maximum leverage when you come at it from more than one angle. Brilliant. So obviously gaining speed is great. That's what I spend a lot of my time trying to help people with. But mm. it's it's no um, it's no secret that a lot of people tend to lose a little bit of speed as they mm. get older too, or they may have lost some speed. What are some things that you can do with driver fitting to maybe help somebody increase their club head speed. I, I'm sure there must be, you know, obviously some um, balance needs to be kept mm-hmm. between club head speed and the actual momentum that's going to be carried through to the ball too. Because, you know, if you're swinging something very fast, but it's mm-hmm. too light, obviously it's not going to transfer energy to the ball. So can you yeah. dig into that maybe? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we do these types of tests quite a lot on the on the channel it's almost become a little bit like an R&D session. You know, we have in our Monday uh, our Monday sessions and we looked recently at an 86-gram shaft versus a 45-gram shaft from the same shaft company. And really, this shaft company doesn't give out much on their EI profiles. They really just say they, they have a, a high version and a low version. So something that kicks a little more and something that's a little bit more tip stiff. So, But we, we isolated really the weight uh, as the variable here. And I would think I was about four miles an hour faster with uh, the light shaft um, than the heavy shaft, but I actually didn't gain any distance. And I was quite significantly, uh, you know, more, more offline. Sort of, yeah, offline. Yeah. 
Exactly. But a year ago, um, I went into doing some driver testing when I was looking for some more speed and found that for me, a 58-gram X-Flex shaft at 46 inches was the fastest, longest, most in control that I could possibly be. So I kind of tried longer, I tried shorter, lighter, heavier, tried everything. Um, And it was a bit of a process over several weeks. And and really, I came out with this, this kind of, gram weight number and a flex number that I knew would give me the the maximum distance without sacrificing the the accuracy. So I think there is a a formula out there for everyone to max out without really um, losing, you know, the the accuracy portion. But you have to be a little bit prepared to go outside the the, the the boundaries of, of kind of where club fitting lies. And yeah, it may not be a 30 minute session where you find what's perfect for you. Definitely. I think in club fitting, Mike, I still believe we're playing far too much in, in between the, uh, the safe space, this, this kind of safe space of, you know, a, a length of golf club or, or a lie angle or a grip size. I think, you know, often in our fittings, I would love to, I'd love to do more of a testing session before we even start testing clubs itself, because I don't really know how you're going to perform with a jumbo max versus a undersized grip versus a midsize, whatever they may be at a certain taper rate until you've done them all and I can get them all measured. The reality is we really don't know what you're going to do with it. So I think in, in time and club fitting, you know, I would love there to be more of a, a, a kind of testing formula that goes into these things uh, rather than just everybody being given, you know, standard length, two degrees upright with a standard grip. It's too safe. So getting back to shaft length a little bit, that's mm-hmm. something that got a bit of buzz when like Phil started using a longer shaft, Bryson used one, yeah. Will Zalatoris has used one to really, really good effect in the last couple of weeks. What have, have you done a lot of testing with players trying longer shafts and what have you found? We've done a lot of testing with it. Um, and there's definitely gains to be had, um, you know, but again, it's, it's, it's doing it in keeping with, with trying to, stand or, or optimize the delivery characteristics at the same time so often the swing changes a little bit the, the body movement changes a little bit uh when it comes to the delivery so um yeah i think there's there's certain things that that can be beneficial but at the same time i don't think the gains the realized gains are often as much as the potential gains right so maybe you may like in the the, the shaft weight um example Again, four miles an hour of club head speed, which should equate to about six miles an hour or so in, in ball speed, which is quite and a lot. Ten, you know, and about eight. 10 yards of distance. But in, in this instance, I gained nothing. Um, again, I didn't gain, you know, literally anything. So, you know, I don't I don't often think that it's 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 fully realized. But if you can do it somewhere like a TXG or or somewhere that has options, then we can go, okay. Your club head speed has went up, but so is your dynamic loft, so you're delivering less pressure into the golf ball. Let's change the club head we've got now. Let's move the CG a little bit forward. Let's move the dynamic loft a little bit down. Then we can get the pressure not even the same, maybe even slightly more into the golf ball at the higher club head speed. Then we're compounding the gains like uh, I was mentioning yeah. earlier on. Purely from a club head speed from a club head speed gain, what was typically seen with going, you know, one inch, two inch, three inches longer? Different for different uh, um, delivery patterns. If you're somebody who who extracts more uh, speed from the upper body, it actually tends to get you more out to in and and you know a little bit more across, and you actually deliver a little bit more loft. So. In those instances, for those players, we have to use less loft uh, and a little bit different kind of face-to-path relationship in order to kind of close the face slightly. Um, so that's typically what we see. If you're more of a, a tour player kinematic sequence, you know that it starts kind of ground up and you use kind of the body properly. Um, you know, we would we would see a little actually more into out and we have to actually open the face a little bit more and we would see, again, a little bit more delivered loft through that. So generally speaking, longer shaft, we do have to go a little bit lower in loft. Okay. Um, an area that I've seen commonly talked about online and that maybe a lot of golfers don't maximize is the top end of their bag. 
between driver and maybe their first iron. What are you know some options that you like to have people try, and what are maybe some trends that you're seeing with, um, I guess, current technology that might make this element or this area of the bag a little bit easier for people? Yeah, I think beyond the driver, which is designed to go as straight and as far, or or as as you know as far as we can hit it without going more offline. That's not really the job once you start getting into fairy wood, once you start getting into hybrids and you're starting to fill that gap. So it becomes about balance uh, in the bag at that point. So how do you transition out of out of your longest iron, which, you know, looking at most people nowadays is a four iron, call it, you know, a 200 yard club. We would then go, okay, what's our 215 club? What's our 230 club? And then driver normally for that player is about 260. So it's all about, you know, creating, you know, different, um, you know, roles and jobs for those clubs along the way to to make sure we've got a club um, at each each kind of stepping point. Are you finding that fairway woods, hybrids, kind of utility woods, which they now have, which are a little bit different, driving mm-hmm. irons? How are you seeing, I guess, the popularity or maybe results of these? Like, for example, there's lots of talk about the three wood almost yep. becoming redundant for amateurs. Mm-hmm. I I personally haven't used one in years. I, I never particularly enjoyed one or got comfortable with one. It didn't really fill any gaps in my bag, to be honest. Mm, yeah. So, for example, I go driver, and then I have a 16-degree hybrid, a 20-degree mm-hmm. hybrid, and then into four iron. But what are you seeing with other people in terms of uh, fairway woods versus hybrids, and mm. what maybe should they should they think about there, do you think? So... Uh- the, the you're 100% right the three wood has be- found itself in a tricky spot because they're so hot now the C- the, the general trend in club design is, is CG lower and, and further back uh, in order to create ease of launch so when you kind of make something you know hot that flies high we lower the CG so we create a, a, a higher launching lower spinning golf ball it becomes quite difficult unless you have high speed to manage that golf club. So, you know, I'm seeing a lot of forwards uh, in people's bag. I've done a fit for a, a lad the other day, um, a lad who came in from Texas, and he had a three-wood that he he basically just couldn't do anything but but kind of hit a bit of a low, low hook with it. We took a five-wood and opened the face in a five-wood, and he gained ball speed, gained launch, and, and actually gained a little bit of spin and picked up about 15 yards in, in total with a five-wood over a three-wood. I think lots of people would be better served going to something around the 15 to 17 degree mark with the three-wood or the first club. Which used to be a three-wood, in, in my mind, almost. Yeah. And, and now, to be honest, there's lots of... 13, 13, 5, and 14 three-woods in the bag that people are going to because it it has become, to your point earlier on, it's become a bit of a launch monitor game. How far can we hit it on a launch monitor? How impressive can we, you know, make it look on there without it being, you know, really that functional? Okay. Um, last point on drivers, and then we'll, we'll move on towards the other end of the bag a little bit. I've seen some stuff online, uh, people being proponents for maybe having two drivers, a driver that they use if it's pretty wide and they're trying to launch it, like maybe a longer shaft. But then the mini driver has gotten Mm -hmm. a little bit of airtime too recently. Have you any thoughts on this or done any testing? I'm not a big fan of it, Mike, to be honest. Um, I don't see massive value in it. Um, You know, I I think... So I I carried last year, carried a slightly longer driver and I carried a slightly stronger three wood. Uh, I really like a three wood. I'm very comfortable hitting it quite high. So I I don't have any issue with with playing my three wood at like 12.75. I think mine is at right now and my driver's turn was turned down to six. Um, So, you know, it's it's quite quite a, di- a difference but that was kind of that was due to a bit of a dysfunctional delivery from from my own perspective i have tried to address that this year because i don't i think too many people are relying on loft as a bit of a crutch um so you know yeah i don't really think though you know, mickelson's a bit of an anomaly isn't he i mean he always thinks out the box where he can maybe gain you know a competitive advantage and two drivers is a bit of an extreme yeah. version but i do feel like the the fairway wood has gotten so hot 
I think most people can achieve that with with their their driver fairwood combination, and, and we don't really need to take up a, an additional space in the bag with a second driver. Yeah, maybe a little bit more, or maybe it makes a little bit more sense for someone like Phil or a Tor Pro, where if there's a certain course where there's a couple of holes where he can clearly mm-hmm. see that it might be an advantage. Definitely. And then, you know, he has the the club fitters where next week he can just change it up again, but probably not a whole lot of use for the club golfer, like who's who's playing, yeah. you know, the same courses and not, not getting new clubs or can get new clubs every week, basically. Exactly. They don't have and five it, different bag options is what for I mean. For sure. Like, yeah. and, and it takes an extreme amount of analysis in order to, you know, try and figure out which club to drop, which, you know, I mean, how many people can predict the distances they'll have into certain holes on any given week. I mean, tour players are that good. They're that precise, but the rest of us really aren't. I mean, how do you pull out a four iron, you know, out your bag thinking that you won't use it? You're guaranteed you get left 200 yards a week, yeah. you know, if you're if you're playing. And also with these guys as well, they can maybe sacrifice a wedge. I mean, Phil's one of the best short game uh, exponents ever. So, you know, he can play so many different shots with fewer clubs so that maybe he has the ability to do that. So, um, yeah, I think there's a reason we've only seen limited amount of adoption with the two driver. Okay, brilliant. Driver fittings and iron fittings have been popular for a while. Wedge fittings and putter fittings, not so much, but they're definitely becoming popular. Can you dig into wedge fittings a little bit first? What goes into them? And then a follow-up, how does it change when your wedge fitting is on artificial mats versus Mm -hmm. on different types of turf, real turf? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we we maybe maybe start there and then we can get into, you know, a little bit of the wedge fitting stuff. But... um, Paul Wood and I talked to uh, Dr. Paul from from Ping and I talked about this a while back and we talked about artificial turf and um, the role it plays in simulating strike depth or divot depth and really then how the the vertical you know strike is is kind of realized so we talked about his mats at, at Ping and, and I'd asked him if he'd done much testing on artificial turf and he said actually the turf that they had at Ping was quite firm and players saw lower launch, higher spin, which is really quite different from what most people's experience is with artificial turf, which is generally to see higher launch and lower spin. Yeah. And at the time that got me thinking, okay, so if Paul has a really firm turf where he can simulate links conditions perhaps, right? So quite a, a low strike on the head and the, you know it's going to tilt the head down and we're going to see the ball spin up a little bit. And we see all these other mats that ha- launch high and spin low because the divots or the, the depth is very, very thick and, and it kind of strikes higher in the head. There's something in between. Um, so we have to go and find the something in between. So we actually went through a painstaking process of testing different turf depths in order to simulate what we feel is representative of a, an average uh, turf on a golf course. So we we went through a lot of testing in order to basically outdoor and then going back and forth between the two in order to try and find a, a turf that we felt like it simulated the strike height the best. Um, so I think that's important to mention. So then Definitely, going in, yeah. yeah, so when we go into the wedge fitting from there, you know, I have a much, much, much more comfort knowing that what I'm testing with you is actually quite similar, very similar to what's going on outside based on the fact I know that our depth uh, simulation is very close to your natural turf. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's that's really good to know. Yeah, we actually today went to the extreme of that, Mike, of, of creating a wedge board that had six different turfs on it. So if we had somebody came in from out of town that plays in Ireland, right? So they play at La Hinch, uh, and, and they, they come in for a fit and they go, well, this doesn't really feel representative of the wedge shots I hit. This even the strike doesn't even feel like what I normally have. I can replace that that turf with something firmer, move the strike back down the head, and I'm giving him a much more representative fit to his needs versus our needs in Southern Ontario here in Toronto. So um, it's very very important that not only are you catering to that, but you also understand that that's a variable. Brilliant. So in terms of wedge fitting, obviously mm-hmm. loft is important for gapping through the bag. Um, and keeping your kind of distances consistent. 
But what are the other things that are really important in finding the best wedges for your game? Uh, yeah, definitely loft is, is important, but I think that's the basics of a fitting, isn't it? Making sure that you've got the, the right the right loft progression, kind of like the rest of the bag. But I think of short game like versatility and options. So what are we? What shots are we likely to be faced with that we need a tool in the bag for that particular shot? So what I normally see is, um, you know, in the range of bounce on a gap wedge from 8 to 12, generally that's the low versus the high. If you're a shallower player, call it three, four degrees down angle attack, you might be that eight degree bounce player. If you get into the six, seven, eight degrees uh, down in your angle attack, you're more like the 12 degrees. So that's that's influencing the strike height based on how much the club is allowed to get down into the turf. So if we have too low of a bounce and we're very steep, we're going to impact it high. We're going to lose ball speed. The launch will be higher. The spin will be lower. Right, so that's not ideal. So the, we're the opposite of how tour players exactly. hit their wedges. Completely the opposite. You end up with those floaty high spin or a high high launch low spin wedges that hit the green and re- release out, which is not really what anyone's intention is with a wedge. Then when we get into the the sand wedges, that's when we have a bit more fun. There's a bit more variety. So if we just want to use Voki, for example, because you know it's the most played wedge out there, if we go into a D grind versus an M grind. Very similar shape to those two particular grinds. There's toe relief, heel relief, but one has significantly more bounce than the other. And that might be for the turf conditions. That might be for sand conditions. It might be relative to if somebody plays it square, it doesn't open it much. They might need the D, right? And then if they open up the, the M grind, then they're adding bounce for every degree that they're opening that face up. They're adding a degree of bounce and then they have versatility to play with. So depending on their conditions, they may, they might need that. So we deal with it on an individual basis based on the shots that people hit. So we have them hit all sorts of different shots, you know, pitch shots, chip shots, and then full shots, open face, closed face. We, we try and see the full variety of shots a player would play then we can get a picture of what we need to give them um, in order to make the, the best out of their impact situation. And I, I've, I've never done a wedge fitting. Um, do you find that the different grinds and bounces can make a very big difference mm-hmm. to a person's ability to hit certain shots? Like obviously, and this goes for like all club fitting, yeah, a lot of it. Like you, you have to have a, a functional technique. Like you, you can't, you can't rescue really mm-hmm. poor technique by changing the bouncer grind on a club. But for someone who has, you know, semi-decent technique, there can be big changes in, in the types of shots they can hit and how consistently they can hit them with wedge changes, you believe? 100%, Mike. Yep, there, there really is. Um, and I think it's getting the right wedge. I'm not a big believer in in the role of the shaft when it comes to to wedges in terms of from a flexing perspective like a like a high spin shaft and a low spin shaft i don't believe in that i think they're they're really no, there's not enough dynamic motion with the shaft on a wedge delivery to influence the delivered loft versus the angle of attack to influence the spin loft or the friction in order to create a different result um, but I do think the weight of the shaft plays a significant role uh, in the delivery so i think that's important but when you compound the head with the right grind, with the right bounce, with the right shaft weight and the right golf ball, you add four things in a row there that can make a massive difference. So you can take someone who's never really had the ability to hit a, a chip shot that checks up to something that, that really looks like has a large degree of control to it based on managing those four factors. Excellent. Um we often hear about the necessity to replace wedges relatively frequently because mm-hmm. of the grooves wearing out and less spin being imparted. What are your thoughts on this? I've, I've seen in the Bay, and it's, it's one of the reasons that you, you can't kind of buy experience, Mike, because you would, by reading the, the text or, or the marketing, you'd say, You've got to replace your wedges every two years at the most or whatever it might be, every 75 rounds. I've had wedges that are two years, four years old, older that are that spin higher than wedges that are brand new in our bags here at TXG. It might be that their face is roughed up and creates more friction, whatever it might be. 
But the one thing I want people to realize is we're not really testing a clean ball and a clean lie. That's not what I want you to think about when you're thinking about do you need your your, uh, wedges to be replaced? It's the same as trying to evaluate a tire on a 70 degree perfect day driving 40 miles an hour and you don't really have any significant turns to take on the road. The tire's going to be fine. It's not, you're not going to, you know, stick it in a ditch, you know, with that particular tire, you'll be just fine. But if you have to drive a bit faster and it starts raining and the road is a little bit more windy, you have other elements to deal with the friction between the tire and the road. That's what we're talking about between grooves and the golf ball and, and reducing the, 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 the friction. With a wet rough uh, Absolutely. And, an, and an old wedge might be a completely different test to your dry ball in a simulator, basically, or even off a fairway when it's 100%. warm and dry. I don't know how Ping have done it, Mike. I don't, you know, again, Paul and Eric might, might kind of, you know, tell us. On, in the testing we've done here recently, um, we have seen when, when a dry golf ball, a clean lie, wet golf ball, clean lie, with this hydroperal, hydrophobic face that they are, or finish that is on their wedge, we've seen spin marginally go up on a wet golf ball on a partial shot. And, you know, all the other wedges that we were testing at the time, spin was dropping off three, four thousand. It was, I mean, it was, it was incredible. Um, so there is some real value to that. So you're out in your competition. You're a, a golfer that loves to play to shoot a low score and, and really compete. If you're playing on a wet day and a dry day, you, you have one less significant variable to think about on a club where proximity is key. And that's where it's so important. Okay. Great, and I, I play ping wedges too, so that's a nice uh, that's that's a nice thing to have um, under control. Definitely. Um, do TXG do putter fittings? Yeah, we do. We um, we do putter fittings. We use um, our Quintix uh, technology for that Quintic ball roll. I can. Um, I mean, it's it's by far the most overlooked part of the club fitting process. Uh, I don't think enough people really understand their their putting delivery or the dynamics that are at play when it comes to to putter fitting. I think a lot of people will will kind of think of themselves as somebody who rotates the putter and needs uh, a blade, somebody who's a bit more straight back, straight through and needs a mallet. And and that's about it. You know, there's, there's really don't go beyond the basics of that. When really, I mean, the margins are so fine. I mean, you get on that 12-footer, you have one degree open or closed and you're going to miss that putt. Mm -hmm. So when you're dealing with that one degree, I want to have your rate of rotation, your strike point, you know, all these things under control um, so we can manage that face and and we can get exponential improvements with the putting on the club you use most on the golf course once we can isolate the variables. There's lots of great putter technologies and, and things like that, but we selected Quintic because Quintic ball roll uh, is, is actually getting the club delivery, impact, and the result all, all kind of together. And I don't want to just have a control over the delivery. Lots of great systems for you know analyzing the delivery of the, the, uh, the putter, but then everything after that is a guess with the, with the ball roll. Quintic is actually measuring the the uh, impact ratio, which is another version of uh, Smash Factor. It's looking at deflection from toe and heel strikes and how much the ball will twist or launch offline. You know, it's looking at the launch and, and roll, so making sure that we're creating equal um, sort of distance control uh, on on the way to the on the way to the the hole on those longer putts. So all those things we talk about proximity with wedges. It's trying to be narrow the proximity on your putts at the same time and when you have a club like a putter that we hit more than 30 right times around for most of us there's such value in getting that right yeah i know that's excellent and again going back to the wedges you can see like i think for for me and probably for other people it might be harder to i guess see the value of putter fitting mm-hmm. because it's hard to see our misses. You're not really seeing the ball spin. You're not really seeing the ball fly. Like if I miss a 10-footer with a really bad miss strike, no one else in the group can probably even tell it was a miss hit because they just still see the ball rolling along the ground. Absolutely. But if I miss hit a drive, you know, it's 40 yards offline and you can clearly see the difference in flight. But when 
obviously we're talking about how small the margins are between holding a 10-footer and, and not. And you can see that the different putting styles match up very differently to different putters. Absolutely. Yeah, could not could not be could not agree with that more. I mean, we our camera sits on ground level and takes 720 frames per second, and it's seeing, you know, the putter come in, how much rotation it has. Now it's measuring uh it's measuring oh about over 20 inches, but it, it, you know when we look at it on the analysis page, it's measuring three inches po- pre-impact and three inches post-impact. And what I'm always trying to do, Mike, is I'm trying to create the most amount of time I have that putter face square within that six-inch range. Because then, you know, if I can get it to the point where your ball position isn't massively, you know, influencing the point at which you're impacting the golf ball, so we have that one degree either side, if I can create a, a, a fairly square putter face or certainly within one degree open or one degree closed within four of those six inches, you can be a little bit off your ball position without completely sacrificing performance. So that's where you have to look at the rate of rotation relative to the path and the face angle of the player and give them the right amount of rotation. So mallets generally rotate a little bit quicker than blades. Um, and, and that's where we can influence those rates in order to get the face square impact. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I just, I love doing putter fittings with people because it's the it's the, more than gaining 30 yards in the bay. Their jaw drops when they see how, how, how controlled they can be. I've had 15, 20 handicappers that can light up the, the Quintic like a PGA Tour player. And they yeah. have no idea they could be that, that, you know, uh, consistent. But one thing I can't give them is the, you know, PGA Tour performance in the Bay. I was I'll, just going to say, I'll never be able to give them that. I was literally just going to bring that up. I think what's very interesting, and you know, maybe or maybe a reason why people should look into kind of putter fitting and, and wedge fitting, or especially putter fitting, is that mm. like the the nature of putting. I think you've say way more options for the technique you try and use yeah. because you don't need to generate any speed or power. Like Absolutely. as as lot like like you, a child can pot as well as you know a fifteen year PGA Tour pro like the the best in the world basically because like they won't obviously but the physical task is so simple it's rolling a ball along the ground there's so many things that need to be basically lined up it's such mm-hmm. a big dynamic chain trying to you know hit a driver at one hundred and ten or twenty miles an hour clubhead speed down a fairway. That, that takes a lot more than learning how to start a ball rolling along the ground that you're putting very, very minimal power into. Yeah. So if we can get a fitting that makes that a lot easier, I think it's something that's that's really, really interesting to consider. It, it really, really is. Um, and then, then sort of the next part beyond that is, and this is where the, the, the pros do separate themselves from uh, the amateurs, is their ability to set up in a specific way to make what they do work. Right, so we, you know, we've heard the examples of Tiger and how much he rates, he rotates the putter. On Quintic, his numbers wouldn't look great, but we know Tiger's proficiency when it comes to, obviously, you know, hitting that putt under pressure, the most pressure on that line that he needs to hit it on, because he knows what works for him. That's the that's why even when people leave with the best numbers on Quintic, I still don't promise them that they're going to be as good as a PGA Tour player because I don't know how you how, how you read greens. I don't know how you aim on a non-linear platform. You know, our platform has lots of straight lines in it. So it's quite easy to set yourself up square to, you know, the the, the platform. Well, put yourself in a big round green on a, on a, you're trying to hit it on a line, not quite as easy, but that's an, another skill that, that has to be of learned, course. you know, more than t- just delivery. Yeah, Tiger's things too. It was wasn't it like the the uh, strike location on the face mm-hmm. and the amount of rotation yeah. are things that you know might not have gotten say the green light or the pass Absolutely. on the on the putting launch monitors, but his repeatability was probably as Through good as anyone. So it's, exactly, which is kind of what we see in a lot of golf swings too. It's like you know of of elite players who have swings that maybe look a little bit different. It's like well. That's not quite what I saw in the magazine or in the book. It's like, but the same thing yeah. happens every time. That basically, like the, the same compensation. That it's is what allow is what allows them be elite with something that might not be quite textbook. One hundred percent. 
Um, okay, perfect. So last one, actually, while I have you, um, ball fitting has mm-hmm. gotten popular now too. The ballnamic tool um, that came out is is interesting. I think a lot of this is obviously, it depends on the level of player too. If you're a beginner to golf mm-hmm. and you're trying to make solid contact, the type of ball you use probably isn't super important. But if you're... The closer you get towards, you know, basically, I would say scratch or if you're trying to play professionally or college or even if you're trying to get from 10 to 5, definitely there's you want to try and get everything that's under your control working as well for you as you can. Definitely, I can tell the difference and see the difference with different balls. And I know for sure some higher level players that I talk to, it's it's night and day. We often see it brought up around Ryder Cups when players mm-hmm. have to play different balls. So what are you doing with golf balls and, and kind of why should people take note of it? So I, I would say golf ball um, or, or sort of the paying attention to the difference a golf ball can make really, really was never something I, I valued as high as I do today until we started ball testing on the on the YouTube channel. So we would test an AVX versus a Pro V1X, um, you know, golf balls that can create a thousand RPMs of difference in spin. And it kind of dawned on me that we I can't give you a thousand RPMs of difference in spin any other way, unless I'm giving you a totally different golf club with a higher loft or, you know, something and then you lose ball speed because you're not getting as much pressure into the golf ball. So I, Golf ball to me became, to be honest, probably the most vital part of the club fitting experience. It's to the point where I say to people all the time, if you're not either being fit with the ball you play or ball being considered as part of the fitting process, the whole thing might be a waste of time. That's a pretty strong statement because, you know, think of the amount of people out there who are listening to, to this podcast today who are thinking, Huh. I went to the local driving range and was fit to drive, and that new shaft felt great, and the new head felt great. And when I got to the golf course, so it didn't quite look the same, or you know, I wasn't quite getting hitting those irons with the same nice flight. You know, unless we're dealing with the same, uh, you know, golf ball. golf ball friction, you know, launch parameters, it's a whole different ball game. And that's where you know I challenge our fitters all the time. Okay, here's the golf ball the player plays. If we throw in this golf ball, what would you fit them to now? And you see they go in a completely different direction with the type of head or shaft, and that's the role the ball plays. It can completely influence the direction that the the fit can go um, based on its its kind of performance. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm glad I asked that question. I I knew it would be an important element, but wasn't sure you'd say it was that important. You actually raised a good point. It's something that, I tell people on Twitter all the time, they ask for recommendations or if I've used any of kind of the, you know, personal grade launch monitors like mm-hmm. Rapsodo or the Garmin or the Bushnell and all this. And they see videos of me using the PRGR on the range, which mm-hmm. is like the cheapest, basically half decent one. And all I use it for is is speeds, is yeah. cuphead speed and, and ball speed. And they're saying, why don't you use the Rapsodo? I know you have one. Or why don't you get one of the other ones? I said, because the balls I'm hitting on the range are garbage. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a waste of time, me like spending the money or, or basically even collecting the data because those balls are going to be flying completely mm-hmm. differently to what a real golf ball will be doing. So I literally won't learn anything from it and even the ball speed i can tell isn't perfectly consistent because i pick up a brand new range ball and then the next ball i hit is one that's probably been there for 10 years and the same club that speed the ball speed is, is completely different you know yeah so it just it goes to show how much the ball changes everything it, it truly truly does i mean it's the only constant in, in every every part of our game we talk about shafts and heads and putters and inserts and all these things we like well the golf ball doesn't change the golf ball has to be that golf ball for all those clubs so if if you're being fitted without that being a consideration i don't know if you're truly being fitted okay brilliant ian that information was great before you go um where are the txg locations how can people find you online book a fitting uh, how can they follow your YouTube channels, your social media pages, anywhere they may want to find you? 
Yeah, thanks, Mike. So the uh, the YouTube channel is probably the, the best source of information where we do share a lot about the things that we're talking about today. I think we're probably just under a thousand videos in uh, to, to our content, our catalog on there. So um, that's just TXG on YouTube. Uh, any of the social media platforms, it is the official TXG. Um, Instagram is probably the one that we're most interactive on. Uh, on on there we try and share my own personal one is uh, Ian Fraser Golf um, on on Instagram and Twitter. So if anyone wants to ask questions direct or or has any questions about anything we've talked today, love to to chat with you guys on there. Um, we have our two stores currently right now in Mississauga, just outside Toronto and just north of the city in Toronto. So we are uh, based here in Southern Ontario, but. Very exciting news. I'm actually flying out from here straight after this podcast. I'm heading out to Calgary tonight um, to um, solidify our next location, um, which will be really good. By the end of the year, we hope to be on the West Coast in Vancouver and, and kind of expanding the TXG brand all over Canada. Excellent. Very good. That's brilliant. And I'm hoping to come and see you in May in Toronto and do a do a day. We would love to love to have you. Now, now is not the time to come to uh, Toronto, Mike. I think I would rather come and see you uh, in, yeah. in Southern California, and we could do some stuff together uh, at your home. We'll do a home and home. I'll come to you exactly. now. You know, this time of year, and you come to me in the, uh, the the lovely summer months here in Toronto. That's perfect, Ian. Thank you very much. I appreciate the information. I'm sure the listeners will too. And if li- if listeners have any questions, I'm gonna say it for Ian, feel free to ask them to him on social media. He's usually very good for replying to them. Yeah, yeah, we do what we can. I mean, there's, you know what it's like. You you, you share more information than, than pretty much anyone out there and do such an incredible job uh, with that, Mike. That, you know, but you know how overwhelming it can be sometimes when, when there's lots of questions coming in. So we, we do what we can. Um, you know, myself, Ryan, who leads our social media team, Mike, uh, Mike TXG, Mike replies to tons. We have, we each do kind of a weekly Q and A. So somewhere in there, we'll, we'll get to your question. That's for sure. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Ian, and talk soon. Mike, thanks, buddy. Take care.